functioning under the faulty and destructive worldview of secular humanism and blinded by their sin, Israel's elders reject the protection of God for the protection of an earthly king, a king modeled after the pagan nations of the world. But what the elders of Israel didn't bargain for is that by sowing the wind of carnal reason, they are about to reap the whirlwind of tyranny. This is the 20th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading again coming from Samuel in chapter 8. Samuel in chapter 8, the entire chapter. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, and it came to pass, when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abiah, they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together, and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore, hearken unto their voice. How be it, Yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked him of the king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants." And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king which ye shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye, every man unto his city. Paul, writing again in Romans in chapter 13, Romans in chapter 13, the first four verses By the same spirit, the apostle says this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. 
Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou not then be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his admonition is the scripture given to us this day with all of its warnings and all of its counsel. Now, having demanded a king like the other nations, even pagan nations, so that the elders of Israel could control the outcome of the situation by controlling the God of their choosing, even the king of their choosing, in the same way that the pagans sought to control their gods, Samuel is first accused of being old, as if to say that he was no longer able to speak for God, as if age meant something that was negative. The elders then bring out a very sorrowful, and of course I guess it was for Samuel, very sorrowful, and in fact a very unfortunate family issue, in that Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways, as if their apostasy was his fault. And yet God never condemns him, but rather just states the fact that his sons did go astray, as some sons will go astray even of godly parents. But before their insidious desires are met, God tells Samuel to make very clear what manner of king they are going to get. And he tells them to parade before the elders exactly what they are going to get and what they should expect. And this is plainly brought out in verse 7. And Yahweh said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me. Notice the next line, that I should not reign over them. They did not want God's rule. They wanted their own rule. They wanted something from their own mind. They wanted something that they could control, but they did not want God. God then reminds Samuel that this mindset of idolatry, because that's exactly what it was, it was idolatry, is in line with the apostate nature of Israel, which went as far back as their fathers in the days of the Egyptian bondage. Their bondage was not physical, it was emotional, psychological, and philosophical, as well as spiritual. It was a a mindset which was faulty, was carnal, and was explicitly secular. Notice verse 8 according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me. This was a pattern. This was an ongoing pattern where Israel was forsaking God over and over and over and trading God for other idols and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. And so God tells Samuel to grant their demands, but not before he parades before them the consequences of their action. Whether the elders understood the consequences before Samuel gave them the consequences, or whether they had to hear from Samuel, they did not care 
as far as the consequences were concerned, they were bent on what they wanted. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly, vehemently unto them, and show them exactly what they are about to get, what kind of king is going to reign over them. And this is a common problem with the mind of man. Mankind rarely contemplates the unintended consequences of their sin and rebellion against God. We see this over and over again. Mankind rarely contemplates that consequence. The application of the worldview of secular humanism, wherever it is actioned, will always, wherever it is applied, will always result in unintended consequences which will erode, if not destroy, entirely an entire nation. It seems as if humanists believe that they can act with impunity. We see this today in our own nation. That humanists can act with impunity are now somehow immune to violating God's law and violating his counsel and things which concern truth and righteousness. However, contrary to the wicked intentions and actions of the apostate elders of Israel and in covenant obedience before God, Samuel is obedient. He is now going to detail what manner of king they will get but not before protesting that they are about to commit a grievous error in judgment. And again, I must reiterate these elders didn't care. You can tell wicked men that they are violating the law of God and there will be consequences and because they are so bent on their secular humanism and their wickedness and their sin, they don't care because they believe that they can act with impunity. But God is going to show Israel and America and everyone else who violates the law of God that they cannot act with impunity. Note the Hebrew wording of verse 9. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, notwithstanding when thou hast solemnly protested against them, thou shalt show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. Notwithstanding when thou hast solemnly protested against them, you are going to show them the king that is going to reign over them. So before granting these apostate elders, these idolaters, their demand, Samuel was told to protest in the most vehement fashion. So he, if you think about Samuel, how he's going to do this, he's protesting, he's pleading, he's warning, he's vehement, he's passionately hot, he's showing them you will be destroyed and here's the manner in which you will be destroyed. So he's telling them that God is going to destroy you through the king that you want. You are doing something very wicked and it will result in evil chaos. And that's our command as well. The saints of God are to vehemently protest. We are commanded to vehemently protest against all unrighteousness, especially when it concerns cultural issues. We cannot, at this juncture, in our day, in our history, we cannot remain silent. No hiding out in the church. No hiding out in the four-wall ghetto church. We are to be vocal. We are to be out in the marketplace declaring the protestation of God against wickedness. Now that's very uncomfortable for some people. But that is what we are called to do. Samuel's example of protest targets protesting openly 
by the Christian against issues of law and governance. This is the example given to us. This is the example given to the church in order for us to recognize that we must engage in these areas of the social order, whether it's issues of the family, issues of law, issues of government, issues of economics, whatever it is, we are to be out in the marketplace, conspicuous in the place of men. And this is because the issues of governance, the issues of family, the issue of economics weigh very heavily upon the people since government, especially government, will either advance freedom, liberty, and the kingdom of God or it will subject its people to tyranny, slavery, and the destruction of the church of Jesus Christ. And again, it must be stated that the final goal of the wicked, and I repeat this over and over and over, the final goal of the wicked, unbiblically founded governments, in other words, is to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, cause the collapse of Christendom, eradicate everyone that has to do with God and his anointed in order to establish a purely secular nation with a culture seeped in godlessness. That's the goal. That's the direction. A culture of godlessness. And they are doing it through the legislature. The plan of the wicked is to destroy God so that they could be God. And in order to achieve this, they must kill all the remnants of the witness of God, his people. Samuel had to clearly explain what was to befall Israel after they had secured an ungodly king. The Reverend Thomas Scott observes, he says, the elders of Israel were so resolutely bent on their own measures that even this protestation from Samuel, from their aged prophet, by the commandment of God himself, produced no effect. That's how wicked these men were. Scott continues, he says, not perceiving that it was their peculiar privilege to be unlike other nations, especially in this respect, they were bent on having a king in order to become like other nations. They had a peculiar privilege of being unique. America had the privilege of being unique. And we traded it in. And we're trading it in now, and the church remains silent and inconspicuous in the affairs of real life. So the first thing Samuel lays out deals with involuntary military conscription. Remember Saul, because the elders wanted Saul, or at least a king, to be a military captain. Saul was to be that military captain, especially chosen by the elders to fight the Philistines and deliver Israel from their oppression. They wanted this military state. So Samuel tells him this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. And the first thing he says is he will take your sons, he will forcibly take your sons, and he will appoint them for himself or his chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. Israel was looking for security against their arch enemy, the Philistines. They wanted a military solution to their problem, not a biblical solution, a military solution. And so God begins by telling Israel exactly what they were going to get. A military solution which would not really bring any benefit whatsoever, but would be their demise. In the long run, it was not what they were bargaining for. Because what they failed to understand was that military security without God's blessing is no security at all. 
God must bless the efforts. He must be at the root of all activity. So Israel was now beginning to develop into a godless military warfare state. It was the road to total serfdom and ultimate slavery to the point where not only was money being stolen and exploited, but lives were being stolen and exploited for the security of the state under the direction of a tyrant, which would do all things for his own glory and his own benefit. He would take for himself, key word, for himself. This was not a voluntary militia as God had commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 20. It was rather the forceful taking of male children to fight the wars of the king, no matter how justified or not. As one commentator commented, he said, the young men, including the sons of those very elders, would be taken by the king for his purpose. They would have no choice. God's law mandated a malicious system which left open several opportunities not to fight, but to leave any potential battle. The militia was called only when there was a godly purpose to fight. Only after a voluntary militia was raised did they appoint commanders. So virtually everything Samuel says the new king will do in this regard would be a violation of God's law. End quote. The key phrase of verse 11 is he will appoint for himself. He will appoint them for himself. His war campaigns were not for the good of the nation. They were not for the good of the people. They were certainly not good for the glory of God, nor according to the law of God. Everything that he commanded would be for himself. His good, his glory, his purpose. And this move was the beginning of a fascist regime, a forcible suppression and a strong regimentation of society and of the economy. Israel's people were on the brink of totalitarianism and they were fully unaware, as so many in our nation today are so unaware of the misery that it will bring. And yet these are the elders of Israel. These are the men who should have stood in the gap. These are the men who should have been out there saying, no, this is wrong, even if they were all alone. Even if there was only one or two or three. And yet, silence by the leaders, by the people. They wanted what they wanted. And they would get it no matter what the cost. Next, Samuel explains in verse 12, And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. So this king would also employ his people to manufacture weapons of war in order to fulfill his bloodthirsty purpose. Commentator McDermott observes, he says, this was the creation of a military industrial complex. It may even been one which was fully nationalized. That is, a national socialist industry. Whatever it was, it was for the king's lawless army and served the interests of the empire rather than the interests of peace. The next injustice Samuel sets forth to the elders, which the king will enact, is the confiscation, not only of the men, but of the daughters. If you think that your daughters are safe, your daughters are not safe. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. Now note how the unjust tyrant seeks to enslave the future of the nation by enslaving the upcoming generation. That's the key here. 
He wants the future generations. He wants the sons. And he wants the daughters. If the king can enslave and control the legacy of the future, he can control the future itself and move it into and mold it into whatever shape and direction and purpose that he wishes. Control the next generation and you control the future of the nation. This is exactly what is happening in America through the government school system. Government education is the spearhead of a psychological war structured specifically to enslave and control the next generation by falsifying history and indoctrination measures through propaganda. Make no mistake about it. That is what is happening right under our very noses. You control that generation and you control the future. What we should be seeing today is a move by professing Christians to remove their children immediately from these indoctrinational seminaries and return them to the home where truth can really be taught. But we don't see this, do we? What we see is a violent reaction by these very same so-called Christians when this is brought up, that you should remove your children from the government indoctrination system. We see them defending vehemently the secular government schooling system even in the face where they're teaching that we should not identify male and female. Look, if that is not enough to get your child out of school, nothing will ever get your child out of school because you are bent on having a secular world and life view control your family culture. It is no wonder why America is on the brink of destruction. Samuel is very explicit here by indicating that the daughters will be taken. But he includes the term confectionaries. They will be confectionaries. That's part of the enslavement. So he is very explicit here by including the term confectionaries to the enslavement of the daughters. And the word actually is the word which means perfumers. These women, these daughters, were going to be forced to make essential oils which were used expressly in worship ceremonies. And it is here, by this phrase, where the tyrant king moves outside of the realm of the civil area into the realm of the ecclesiastical area in order to control the worship of God's people. He says, I will have your daughters make the essential oils for worship because I'm moving into the church. I'm going to take over the church. McDermott agrees. He says, the making of fragrant oils was associated with the priesthood and worship according to Exodus 30 and 37. In fact, it was forbidden for anyone else to use the special recipe God prescribed for temple use. But even in general, aromatic oil represented holiness and glory. For the king to adopt this also as an ornament of his reign, he would be making a boast of his own glory and honor rivaling God's. He would be moving into the church. And so here again is another attempt at being God. Now the next step for the tyrant is to confiscate private property, privately owned land, specifically of those that farm, the farmlands. The tyrant wants to own the production of food. You control the production of food and you can have your people do anything. You truly rule with an iron fist. 
And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. This is what fascist governments do. They confiscate land as they did in Cuba, as they did in Venezuela, and all of the other nations that have a fascist totalitarian regime. They confiscate land either through a direct takeover or by oppressive taxation. This too is another declaration that the king seeks to be his God. Since God owns all the land and has given land to his servants, the tyrant now wants to reverse that. He now seeks to give all the land so he can give it over to his servants and he can control it through his officers. Now the word servant indicates that the tyrant will give these lands to his military officers. And this is nothing less than universal eminent domain, which is a clear violation of God's law. In verse 15, we see this going one step further down the road to serfdom and total slavery where Samuel says he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. So the confiscation of seed, the seed tithe and the tithe of the vineyard is a confiscation, once again, a reiteration of the confiscation of the means of agricultural production. The fact that the king commands the tenth indicates that he wants exactly what was due God because he thinks he is God. Samuel is telling the elders that the king that they now desire will set himself up as a rival to the true God. That is what Samuel is saying. He says, you have forsaken the living God and you will get a man to be his God. He continues in 16 and 17, those verses where we see this again by the king confiscating people along with the tenth of the livestock. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his slaves. So in short, the entire culture now, under the reign of this totalitarian king, the entire culture now will exist to serve the king, to serve the government. So what was going to be the outcome? of such a governing system. Well, according to what Samuel tells the elders, the system that they were about to embrace was a warfare welfare system. God is giving Israel over to a system of government which is bent on war and welfare. God is giving Israel exactly what they wanted, a military king and a military system. But this system, as we said already before, will be to their utter destruction, their utter demise. Now, once the king commandeers every aspect of the social order. The people will have to beg at the feet of the state for their livelihood. This will bring them into a welfare relationship with the state and this is happening as we speak in our nation. Americans today are being bribed by stimulus after stimulus Money after money being thrown at them. Welfare entitlements to the point where it will be more lucrative not to work than to work. So the purpose of man made by the, by the God in heaven, the purpose of man to work is now stripped from man where his, his purpose is no longer any longer valid because now he's given more incentive not to work than to work. And once this total dependence on the state's nannying is perfected, I can tell you this, slavery will then be complete. What Samuel is explaining to the nation is that as a result of their collective consciousness of fallibility and anti-Christian theology of law and governance, they have desired a totalitarian system of government. And that's what they're going to get. And for them, for them, 
in their insanity, this was the ideal state. For the progressives in, in government, this was utopia, the messianic utopia. And yet, it would be the state which Israel believed would be their protector and deliverer that would actually become the greatest enemy, the greatest enemy of national Israel in the same way that the modern state has become the greatest enemy of Christianity. Stephen Perks explains, the greatest adversary of Christ, indeed the greatest antichrist, in the early centuries of the church's history was the state as conceived in classical antiquity, not the worship of pagan gods. It was not so much the gods that was the enemy of Christianity. It was the state. He continues, The Aristotelian doctrine that mankind is nothing more than a part of the animal kingdom sets forth the idea that man can only find his purpose and happiness in the service of the state. Not mankind finding his purpose in God, but in the state. Now, according to this idea, the state was the vehicle for man achieving his greatest potential. And to be separated from the state, or as Aristotle called it, the polis, or the polis, it was contrary to man's best interest. If you were not worshipping the state, or, or ministering at the feet of the state, you had no purpose. Individualism and individual judgment was frowned upon, even seen as subversive. Today, what we see when we go into the supermarkets, when we go into the, 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 the malls or, the, or Walmart or any of these stores is men and women and little boys and little girls bowing at the feet of the state, listening to the mandate, and there's no individualism anymore. They're mashed up to the, to the hilt because they have succumbed to the propaganda of the state and have no longer any individualized purpose. And if you walk through any of these stores without bowing to the mandate, you are looked at as subversive. As a result, in order to fulfill man's best interest, the state mandates its citizens to be an active part of its plan, usually through coercion. Or today, the new thing is self-censorship. You're so embarrassed that you're the only one in Walmart or the only one in Target without a mask that you feel so weird that you're just going to put one on to keep everybody from looking at you. Well, at least when they look at you, they're seeing who you are. So the state today... In their wicked, in their wicked brilliance, is experimenting with self-censuring, and it's working. But it must be resisted. Refuse the censure, resist the censure, and defy the tyrant. Now it didn't matter what the plan was, as long as that plan glorified the state, which meant through the state's mandates, you would have then unquestionable servitude. The state wants unquestionable obedience. No questions. Don't question the state. Don't question the government. Don't question the laws. No, 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 no. That's, that's rebellion. Unquestionable service. Claiming total omniscience. The state would tell the people how to think, what to do, and what not to do. 
through intimidation, fear tactics, and even in the most recent weaponization of a pandemic, the state has effectually convinced people that they are godlike. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Wear two masks. Don't gather, gather, wear goggles. Don't wear goggles. Vaccinate, don't vaccinate. Where does it end? Who stands up for what is right? Who says the king has no clothes? Who is going to say that? These mandates are experiments. You, me, we are the guinea pigs to see who will obey, who will not obey, and to what extent this too must be resisted. Now what is so significant about the mindset of these Israeli elders of Samuel's day is that they were both ready and willing to embrace a God-man in the pagan king they demanded in the same way Americans are willing to embrace the World Health Organization, the governor's mandates, the unjust laws of legislatures, and judicial oligarchs, and whoever has the audacity to claim godlike revelation. For Israel in today's modern apostates, this pagan ruler would act messianically and bring them into misery, bondage, and give them the culture, that cultural utopia that they desired, which would be rather a dystopia. Perk again comments, he says, In the ancient world, this spirit of Antichrist achieved its most potent manifestation in the cult of the Roman emperors. In the cult of the... Let me put it in modern language. In the cult of the American governors. In the cult of the American oligarchs, the Supreme Court justices. In the cult of the Congress. In the cult of the Senate. In the cult of the House of Delegates. In the cult of the Caesars. If they speak not according to this word, it means that there is no light in them. Christ and the apostles were in fact dealing with the exact same status mentality when they faced off against the Pharisees, like the elders in Samuel's days. The Jewish leaders of the first century had embraced, or at least tolerated, the status mentality of divinity, hoping that if they played along with the powers of the state, they would be treated kindly. Historian and Christian Christopher Dawson observes, he says, the Christian of the early church regarded the official worship of the emperor as a supreme act of blasphemy, the deification of material power and the setting up of the creature in place of the creator. So long as the empire confined itself to its secular function as the guardian of the peace and order, the church was ready to recognize it as the representative of God, as long as it was the guardian of peace. But as soon as it claimed an exclusive allegiance and attempted to dominate the souls as well as the bodies of its subjects, the church condemned it as a representative of Antichrist. The church condemned it. They were vocal. Could you imagine? Just, just for a minute, just for a moment, just for a minute. Could you imagine if every church in America stood shoulder to shoulder to condemn the actions of unrighteous legislation and governance? We changed the world overnight. Overnight, it would change. Because those cowards in power, the antichrists in power, would be so frightened of the magnitude of of the witness of God that they would have to capitulate. But what does the church do? 
We want to go along so we can get along. So what the elders of Israel were embracing was a system of tyranny and socialism at the same time. And both of these political positions are religious. The doctrines of tyranny and the doctrines of socialism are religious positions. Both reject God's order for a substantial order based upon man's belief as to what is the best form of government. Again, my good friend Stephen Perks brilliantly explains, he says, socialism is evil in principle because it is predicated on the rejection of God's order for man's life, even if it is adopted as an idea by men with good intentions. It is really a religion, not merely a form of economic organization, because it functions as an all-embracing worldview. Socialism is a complete remodeling of society according to some ideal of social perfection, which is based upon religious presuppositions. Now, according to Sergei Bokalov, in his work, Early Christianity and Modern Socialism, he says this, Socialism nowadays emerges not only as natural area, a natural area of social policy, but usually also as a religion, one based upon atheism and the deification of man and man's labor and on recognition of the elemental forces of nature and social life and as the only meaningful principle of history. It's purely anti-Christian. It's purely secular. It's purely man-centered. Socialism, therefore, reduces life to the economic aspect which translates into the religion of service to material interests and therefore it is at its root idolatry. And this is what the elders were guilty of. And this is what American Socialistic Democratic Party is guilty of as well in the progressives. Now, verse 18, as I said last week, is probably the most frightening declaration of all, where God says through Samuel, and ye shall cry out in that day because of your king. You see, they're finally going to wake up, which is a good thing. They're finally going to wake up, but God will not hear them. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Samuel promises that Israel will finally cry out under the oppression of their new king. He reminds them that the oppression that they sought for was of their own choosing and they now have to bear the brunt of it. But what is so fearful in Samuel's statement is that even though they cry out, he's not going to hear them. Could you imagine? The only help, the only hope is God. And he says, no, I'm not helping. A terrible prophecy. And on hearing that, it was at that time, at that moment, that the elders should have had this, this Jesus moment re-examining their command for a pagan king. And they said, wait a minute, you mean God is not going to hear us if we do this? If we finally come to our senses, He's not going to hear us? They should have re-examined their petition. Nevertheless, verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, nay, but we will have a king over us. They said no to God. Can you imagine Saying no to God, it's sort of like when the little child says to the mommy or daddy, no. So God says, it's clobbering time. <laughs> so when your child says no in rebellion, it's time to straighten out the rebellion. This was a terrible prophecy. Now for a moment, consider the arrogance. And that's what it was. No God, I will not have your ways. Consider the arrogance of these elders and the depth of their apostasy as they double down on their sinful desire to be like the pagan nations of the world. Verse 20. 
so that we may be like the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now the elders wanted two things in particular. Notice, one, a pagan king to judge them and two, a pagan king to establish a military army to break the back of the Philistines. But what were they really asking for? Well, they were asking for judgment by a pagan man. How in the world are you going to get right judgment, right counsel from a pagan man? Judgment by a pagan king can only bring tyranny since the standard by which the wicked judge is always cruel. In Proverbs 12, Solomon tells us that even the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Even at their tenderest moment, they are cruel. Even at the king's best, he would be a cruel tyrant. Secondly, they were also asking for a military king so that he might establish Israel as an undefeatable entity. But what they failed to realize was if this king was able to establish Israel as such a force, an undefeatable force, would he not begin to conquer other nations as well for his own good? Would he not then become, instead of a Hebrew republic, an empire? Would his lust for power and land and people be satisfied by simply securing Israel from their enemies? Or would he want to go everywhere and secure everything for himself? Samuel already warned the elders that if the king's military exploits, that if the king's military exploits for his own lust and not for the glory of God, there would be no stopping him from causing Israel to become an empire, even as Egypt or Rome. Because pagan kings want to be the hegemon or the supreme ruler over all nations. This is what China wants. This is what America wants. This king would seek supremacy and he would do everything in his power. He would do everything to gain it. He would exploit the entire nation to achieve it and nothing would hold him back. So hearing the reply of Israel's elders, obedient Samuel repeats all of this to to the Lord in order to hear his counsel and God tells him, you go protest solemnly. God was going to give them exactly what their evil hearts desired in order to judge them and to finally bring them to their knees. And so we tell Samuel, go ahead, grant them their wish for a king like the other nations. So Samuel does so, warning them, giving them the horrible prophecy that God will not hear them, and then sends them back to the city, to their own hometown. But what is so important about this story is at this very moment where Samuel is laying out such horrible, horrible things, God is working behind the scenes. He's already picked David. He's working. Samuel perhaps even knows this. The Israelis do not. The Israeli elders do not. But he's working behind the scenes. And what does that mean for us today? What is that meaning for us today? It means that even in the darkness, when we see the tyranny ratcheting itself up and Leviathan coming upon us. God is working behind the scenes. And therefore, we are never to be weary in well-doing because God is at work. Because He will have a people for Himself and He will be victorious. Next, we shall explore further some additional modern applications to Israel's departure from the rule of God to the desire for a wicked king and a wicked government And we continue in our series in 1 Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.